Welcome back, pod people. In today's episode, my guest is Professor Dustin Morrow, the writer-director of the 2019 film Black Pool. And normally when I introduce uh, a movie like this, I say the genre that it's in, like the 2019 horror film or sci-fi film or what have you. Um, but Blackpool is categorized on IMDb as a thriller, but when I was watching it, I really got the sensation that it was almost like an anti-thriller, uh, in that most thriller movies uh, introduce us to the characters and then have like a lot of interesting um, action and you know chasing and and uh, fun explosions and things like that. Uh, whereas Blackpool, uh, we start in media res with the uh, one of the main characters having kidnapped already having kidnapped the other main character, and uh, we see a little bit of the sort of explosions and uh, that sort of thing that you would expect in a thriller film, but only in the form of flashbacks and archival footage of actual bombings. And so we don't get the fun, thrilling aspect that you would uh, expect in a thriller film. And instead, this is really more of a tragedy that uh, only, just only shows us the aftermath of the uh, uh, of all of those actions. Uh, so, um, Professor Morrow, or should I call you Professor Morrow or Dustin? Or... You can call me Dustin. Okay. Uh, so, Dustin, um, tell us a bit about the decision-making process that led to creating this uh, really interesting structure for the film. Uh, the film came about from a couple of different things. Um, one of them thematic, content-based, and the other one more pragmatic. Um, the former was that I was interested for a long time in making a film about the politics of Northern Ireland. I have um, worked in Ireland a lot and done a lot of projects that have addressed various aspects of contemporary Irish identity. Um, I've done some short films about the, that, the politics of Ireland, um, but never a narrative feature. And that was something I was interested in trying and it kind of came to a head after Brexit passed in the UK because that's, that reheated discussions about the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland, um, which had for uh, decades at, that, at this point been very peaceful um, because both countries are part of the European Union. So it was an open border. Um, when Brexit passed, um, there was a lot of concern in Ireland and Northern Ireland about whether that might remilitarize that border um, and sort of reignite some of the uh, violence that surrounds the, the conflict that has raged forever in Northern Ireland. Um, so it was, a, it was an interesting time to try to address those, those themes and, and that history. The pragmatic uh, approach was just that I, I've become very interested in working with actors. I mean, I've always been interested in working with actors, but I wrote a book um, a few years ago with Kathleen Turner, the legendary actress from Romancing the Stone and Pritzi's Honor and Body Heat and Serial Mom and Virgin Suicides. And that process of writing that book with her was very eye-opening to me because I sort of thought as somebody who's been directing movies for a long time that I had a handle on 
the actor's process and how to work with actors, how to experiment with actors. And, and realizing as I worked with her in depth on a 400 page book that I didn't really know what I thought I knew. Um, and so I decided <laughs> I really wanted to make a film where the faces of the actors became the principal visual landscape of the movie um, mm. and work with just a very small cast um, in a very confined setting where the concentration of my work could be um, collaborating with them to craft those performances. Yeah, and I think so. Those... Yeah, so there's only three actors in the movie, and the script was written very carefully um, to make the audience constantly question their allegiance with various characters. Um, Constantly Which it succeeded with, uh, yeah. I, I think, from my point of view. Yeah, try to make you sort of think, you know, at, at various points in the movie, who is the good guy, who is the bad guy, keep it all shades of gray, which is why the movie's in black and white. Um, Up until the end, when forgiveness enters into the picture, and then it becomes color again. Yeah, and they're able to get out of that basement. Um, yeah. yeah. So it was sort of those two things that led to deciding to do that movie at that particular point. That makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. Um, speaking of the, the aspects of, of black and white versus color, uh, mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit about uh, that was something I assumed, you know, when, when it opened and it's in black and white, oh, okay, this is a black and white movie. It's going to be black and white the whole way through. Uh, but then it's not. The very last scene is in color. Um, so could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, what's funny is that the very first shot is actually in color and the color drains out of the shot and then the movie's in black and white for about 80 minutes until, as you noted, like the last five or 10 minutes are in color. What's great is <laughs> that I heard from all these projectionists that were showing the movie in theaters around the country <laughs> were like, is there something wrong with this? Because we we started it and it's in color and then all of a sudden the color kind of leads <laughs> out of the image and i think we've got a bad copy and i was like no that's the way it's supposed to look so i should have sent a i should have sent a note with everybody who uh, had to screen it so that they were prepared for it but i i became the uh, you know the irritation of project projectionists all over the place um reminds me a bit of i think it's uh gremlins 2 where the the, the projector film breaks down. I've, I've heard that there were projectionists who freaked out when when viewing that part for the first time. Yeah, you have to be careful with stuff like that. There's a there's a whole sequence in Kill Bill Part Two where the bride, I think she blinks and then it goes black and white for ten minutes. And I heard Tarantino say later that he had to do that because there was so much blood in the sequence that it was going to result in a, an NC-17 if he didn't go to black and white. But I remember seeing that in the theater, having not heard about that and wondering whether there was something wrong with the projection that I was getting. And because it just felt very, very it felt very random that two hours into a two and a half hour movie, all of a sudden we were just gonna be in black and white for a while. Anyway. Here I was just assuming it was an aesthetic decision. Yeah. But. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. Um, in, in in the case of Blackpool, it, it totally is. It's not, it's, um, it, it was a decision made for a number of reasons, one of which is that sort of genre-wise, there's an element of film noir about this story. Um, 
And also the, the, the faces of the actors just looked more interesting in black and white. And it's not like it's a particularly visually compelling, um, it's not a scenario that provides a lot of opportunity to do visual fireworks, a bunch of people trapped yeah. in a, in a dank basement. Um, well, one, just... one interesting thing we did do though, and this was kind of the, uh, the, the DP kind of talked me into this. We had a whole, you, you can almost not see it in the film, but there's a whole set there. We, we, we shot on a soundstage and we built a whole fake basement set. Oh, really? And, I'd assume yeah. we filmed in an actual basement. No, it was, it was done on a, it was done in a studio. Um, and, uh, and we, we lit it and he kept, he's like, you know, I think we should just pull, he kept pulling more and more lights out and it just kept getting darker and darker and darker. And to the point where now, if you watch the movie, you really can't even see any of the set. It really is just literally the yeah. actors. Um, and it's interesting because the, the decision to do that ultimately made took the movie out of, I think, almost a realistic setting and almost made it, I don't know, the word metaphorical sounds really pretentious, but you know, <laughs> it, it, it sort of made it otherworldly almost in a I way. I see what you mean. Yeah, it's just like these three people are the only people in the world um, yeah. at the time this is happening. I also found, um, I found the use of black and white uh, at least from my perspective, functioned as sort of a metaphor for the character's moods that um, Michael Foley, the the one doing the torture, mm -hmm. uh, has this extremely black and white viewpoint, which yeah. then gets, uh, when the color gets introduced, that seemed like a metaphor for him accepting that there's nuance to all of this. Yep. Um, yeah, and... that's cool that you picked up on that. That's exactly... That's exactly it. There's even a line in a dialogue in the movie when he's listening to the podcast interview with the guy who um, who killed his father, and the, the guy is explaining the conflict in Northern Ireland. It's a little bit of clunky exposition, but he he says, you know, it's a it's a, not a conflict of black and white. It's all shades of gray, and it is a very complicated um, conflict. People tend to think. People who don't know a ton about it tend to think it's about Catholics versus Protestants, that it's like a religious conflict, but it's really not. It's really like a political conflict and an economic conflict. It's a cultural conflict. And there's a lot more to it than just Protestants versus Catholics. Yeah. I. Um, it's interesting that you use the phrase shades of gray because I... Uh, um, I often find myself sort of annoyed by that phrase because I think that it it implies, like in, at least you know, for my very mathematical background, I it makes me think like, okay, well that means that you know, it's not a hundred percent right, zero percent wrong, it's seventy percent right, thirty percent wrong, or something like that. Whereas in reality, it's even more complicated than that. I, I think that that um, I found it really interesting that the uh, the poster for this uh, film is the, the Irish flag in the background um, with the black hammer in front of it. Um, and the Irish flag is uh, pure color. There's no symbology in it the way that there is in like, you know, there aren't stars or a coat of mm -hmm. arms or anything. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
I went in expecting there to be something interesting going on with color, and then the fact that it was in, almost entirely in black and white uh, was the interesting thing that was going on with color. Uh, so I found all of that um, really interesting. I really like it when uh, filmmakers make use of um, the visual language of film, and especially when, like, all, all of the people that I interview on this podcast are independent filmmakers who work with rather small budgets, mm -hmm. uh, and I always find it interesting when those restrictions breed creativity and people, uh, like you you said, you, you I think you had, what, three actors and three sets, um, mm -hmm. the and and three colors of the Irish flag I'm just noticing yep. mm -hmm. and all <laughs> yep all uh, intentional yeah yeah, uh, yeah all of all of these things that um uh yeah yeah all of these restrictions that that have forced you to to think and film in creative ways yeah and it's great when you're working in micro budget filmmaking unless you're intentionally setting out to make like a a little horror movie that you're hoping to make a few bucks on, which really even horror as lucrative as it is, anyone who goes into micro budget filmmaking thinking they're going to make money is in the wrong industry. Um, the, the great thing about it is that it, it allows you to make kind of non-commercial decisions. You know, that was shooting a movie in black and white is not a good idea if you want to get a wide release for it, get a bunch of people to see it. People don't want to watch black and white movies. They don't want to watch movies with subtitles. You know, there's things that... Man, you, I do. <laughs> that, well, yeah, I mean, there's things that you and I as cineasts, like, relish, but that the average person um, uh, has an aversion to. So, uh, but you could do it when you're making little movies like this and, and you know, you're you're trying to hopefully please yourself before anybody else you know yeah um so on the subject of the technical aspects of producing the film uh i'm curious what was the budget for blackpool it was like about 12 grand i think okay yeah so definitely really definitely within the micro budget range mm -hmm. um and uh what camera did you film it on what did we shoot on? We shot on a, a C300. Okay. And it was just the one camera, mm -hmm. I assume? Yep. Nice. Yeah. We had a couple, but we didn't um, We didn't end up doing any two-camera shoots on, on this. Cool. Uh, I had one more question I wanted to ask about the production of it, but it's slipping my mind at the moment. Um, you mentioned working with Kathleen Turner earlier, mm -hmm. who, uh, among other things, was in Serial Mom, the mm -hmm. John Waters film. Um, and I'm thinking about how uh, micro-budget independent filmmaking has changed over the decades, where John Waters, uh, in his early work, like Pink Flamingos, um, I believe literally had to steal the film from a production company in order to film it on that you know literal film stock mm -hmm. uh whereas nowadays um if i recall correctly the the canon c300 that's a digital camera that mm -hmm. um so you you no need for film anymore yep. uh and so i'm curious uh what have you observed in terms of how filmmaking and especially micro budget filmmaking uh has changed over time and where do you think it's going in the future 
Well, certainly digital cameras have democratized filmmaking and made it possible for people who um, used to uh, be enabled to uh, overcome the barriers to making a feature film, it, it's allowed them to do that. Um, I have students that make features while they're still in college. I tell them not to do that, but they do it anyway. Um, <laughs> Why do you tell them not to do that? Because I think that it's a good idea to experiment in the short form first, um, even though hmm. Because when you're a student, I tell them this all the time, that when you're a student, it's not really about, you're not trying to make a movie that's going to take the world by storm. You're, you're learning a set of skills. You're learning how to tell stories with images and sound. And so while you're doing that, you should want to make as many films as possible because, frankly, most of the first films you make are going to be pretty bad. Um, because you're, <laughs> but, they're, but they have great value to you as an artist because you're learning your craft. Um, you're making mistakes and you're learning from those mistakes. And so students that are like, that come in and they haven't made any shorts and they're like, well, I'm gonna make a feature. It's almost like saying, you know, I've never swum in a pool before in my life, but I'm gonna go jump into the middle of the ocean. You know, it, you just need to, there, there's a certain skill set that you need to develop before you, you bite off more than you can chew. And I haven't yet. I'm sure somebody someday some one will make one that'll blow me away. But I haven't yet seen that. Um, I can't. I can't remember how I got on that. Oh, micro budget filmmaking. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's. I think it's great because it, as I said, it allows you to take risks. Um, and just like you were saying, I, I find often that limitation often provokes creativity. I mean, many of the best movies in, in, in all genres are, you know, I saw an interview with Sam Raimi recently where he was talking about having about $6 to make Evil Dead. And he was just talking about, you know, how he and Bruce Campbell would build these rigs. They would like nail a camera to a, a two by four and they would each get on a side of the two by four and then they would just sprint through the woods. And that's how they got that like crazy shot that we all know of the of the, the ghoul kind of launching through the through the forest. Yeah. And you know, that kind of that kind of required solution finding um often results in us seeing stuff that we've never seen before. Um there's nothing there's nothing more boring than you know, a two hundred million dollar I watched the Jurassic Park, the last Jurassic Park sequel last night yeah and you know i mean i guess i shouldn't i'd this. be surprised if its budget is only 200 million <laughs> yeah and it was just terrible it was like this big shapeless formless um passionless uh boring um you know thing it just lied there like a dead fish it was just uh or a dead dinosaur mm. as it were <laughs> um and it was just like, and it just reeked of what so many of those movies are, which is like, you know, throwing money at problems, which I feel like find rarely results in creative inspiration. But yeah, having said that, the movie I'm working on now has a has a pretty big budget by my standards, and so we'll see. Maybe I'll change. Maybe I'll change my tune. Come back and talk to me in six months. <laughs> <laughs> what's What's the movie you're working on now? Tell us about that. 
it's a um it's a thriller that i wrote that is uh going to be directed by um fred decker who is a friend of mine and also one of my favorite filmmakers um he did the monster squad night of the creeps um he wrote the predator i know those movies yeah yeah <laughs> yeah he's great um he hasn't directed uh in quite a long time so he's excited to kind of get back behind a camera and he's kind of bursting with creative energy which is cool to see and um you know it's hollywood so projects could always fall apart but this one seems like it's gonna go so hopefully it will and uh and it will make something cool cool i would love to interview him about all of that um you mentioned uh, wanting people to work on short films while they're in college and then wait until mm -hmm. after they've graduated to make feature films. And you also mentioned the work of Sam Raimi, uh, mm -hmm. which I find really amusing because um, he shot Within the Woods, which is a half hour long uh, short film uh, while he was in college, which was basically almost like a, a pilot for The Evil Dead, um, mm -hmm. and then dropped out of college and shot The Evil Dead. Uh, which makes me, um, which, which is really, in, it's really interesting to me how that sort of lines up with what you were saying, except for the whole waiting to graduate college part, uh, and makes me wonder to what degree, um, simply having more time, uh, uh, makes a difference in terms of the scale of film that you're able to make. Um... Yeah, well, you could, I mean, I've, I've known people that have spent far more on their five minute long films than I've spent on Blackpool. You know, I, I you mean in terms of time, in terms of time and money. Oh, wow. um, so, you know, the, the duration of your movie, the scale that you assign your screenplay can be can vary. I mean, I've seen people spend a year working on a short film, and I've seen people crank out a feature in a couple weeks. So what was I, the shooting time on Blackpool? Blackpool was shot in, I want to say, five days, four days, five days. It was All very, right. yeah, very, very fast. I had a short window with a couple of the actors. Um, so definitely had everything like tightly scheduled and yeah, and we, we weren't they, prepared. Yeah. They weren't like improving a ton or anything like that. We, and, and I had storyboarded the whole movie and knew exactly what it was going to look like. And I, I tend to work fast anyway. I just run a fast set. I just like that. It keeps right. everybody, keeps everybody, you know, there's so much sitting around when you're making a movie that the, the less you can have people sitting around and, uh, you know, sort of the more energy and um, enthusiasm they bring to the project. I think if you could keep people fully engaged at all times, which not always possible, but. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so. Thinking about uh, the act of directing uh, your actors and creating characters, I find that um, 
something I've been thinking about a lot recently as regards, especially like genre films and, and double especially horror films, is that it's really important that the uh, audience have strong opinions about the characters. And traditionally in most genres, um, this means that you want the audience to like the characters. Uh, but in horror particularly, it also works if the audience hates the characters. Mm -hmm. um, and so I found my opinions of the characters, uh, especially um, Aiden Flynn, mm -hmm. uh, evolving over the course of the film, whereas usually in, in a film, you sort of, you start out not knowing anything about the character, they get established pretty quickly, and then you usually maintain basically the same opinion of them throughout the whole movie. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in this, I found it um, changing over time. Uh, and so I, I'm curious if you could talk about uh, what you do to try to control, or, or perhaps perhaps you don't try to control, I don't know, uh, mm -hmm. the audience's uh, opinions of the different characters mm -hmm. and how um, that sort of work can vary from genre to genre. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actors love that stuff, everything you just talked about. Like that's their favorite thing because uh, there's nothing I think duller for an actor than to strike one note on the first day of shooting and then have to strike that same note every subsequent day. So, <laughs> so they, okay. they, they relish like that's, I mean, this was a very small movie and I was able to get really good actors for it. And part of the reason was that they saw potential in the script to do interesting stuff. And so, um, the actor you're talking about, his name's Todd Van Voris, and you know, he spins the whole movie strapped to a chair. So part of my pitch to him was, you know, here's an opportunity you've never had. You were going to take away all of your physicality, essentially, you know, which is half of what an actor has to offer. Um, you know, the, what they're doing with their body and what they're doing with their voice, essentially. And so we're gonna limit him to just the voice and um and not only that, but he's going to have to give a performance that does exactly what you just mentioned, which is um, make the audience question his motivations, his backstory, um, and his sympathies. Um, I told I said, you know, I want people to be rooting for you at the beginning of this movie, but by the end, I want them to not really be sure if they should be rooting for you. Um, and that was a cool thing for him to do. And because we shot out of sequence, it's something that I had to work very carefully with him to chart because, you know, the, the first scene we shot was the, the long last scene of the movie where kind of every, the big reckoning comes about and they have this sort of 15 minute conversation. And we did that first. Um, so that was something I learned from Kathleen when I was writing that book that she talked about shooting out of sequence in movies and what an incredible challenge that is versus the work she does on stage where you go on and then you do act one, act two, and act three. And the performance you craft has an obvious arc because it's happening in the order that the screenwriter wrote it, sorry, playwright. Whereas <laughs> in, whereas in film, you're, you know, you could be shooting, you know, the middle of the movie first, and then a little bit of the beginning, and then you shoot the end, and then you go back to the beginning, and then you finish the middle. And to have to, to have to craft a performance that has an arc over the course of 90 minutes to two hours and, and feels consistent and coherent while doing it that way 
is really, really tricky. Plus they're working like, you know, an actor actually only works a few minutes a day. Most of their day, they're in their trailer, right? <laughs> so again, it's sort of that, that the capacity um, to, uh, to move into the right spot in the performance so that it'll make sense when the film is cut together is a challenge for actors I hadn't really thought about before um, working with her. And so I think it's my responsibility as a director to help an actor navigate that. Yeah, I'm curious why you shot it out of order because I was under the impression that the typical motivation for why a film would be shot out of order is because it's like, okay, we have two scenes that, you know, take place, you know, are, are 40 minutes apart in the movie, but they take place in the same location. So let's shoot them both in while we're in this location. Or uh, we have these two scenes with the same characters, even though they're in different parts of the movie, let's shoot them since we have all these same actors here. But this is all in the same location with the same actors. So why not mm -hmm. just shoot it all the way through like a play? Yeah, it's um, entirely for all the non-romantic answers you might suspect, which have to do with scheduling actors and um, set camera setups and how long it takes to change a camera setup and a lighting setup oh. and um, the block of time that we had available to us on a given day. Like we might, one of those days we might have had, in fact, that day, I think we had a full like, 10 hours to work. And that's why I was like, well, we're gonna do this massive scene then because it's gonna take 10 hours and I don't wanna split it over multiple days because I wanna put them in the headspace and keep them there. Um, so it's stuff like that. It's like scheduling. Okay. Scheduling nightmares. Um, the the sort of details that you don't uh, think of until you're in the weeds of doing it. Yeah, yeah, they're really the, like not fun stuff that if you have, <laughs> If you have a if you have a big budget, um, then you can hire an assistant director whose job it is to schedule your movie. And and uh, but when you're working on the micro budget, you're you're in that stuff yourself. You know, you're a big part of that. So, oh, you did have a production assistant on this, didn't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wasn't. I certainly I had a crew. I mean, it's not like I made the movie alone. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I've done that before, and that's uh, I don't need to do that again. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, I I certainly had help, and uh, but you know, on a on a micro budget set, you you wear a lot of hats over the course of the day. I mean, the the nice thing about a budget, I will say, is that it affords you the luxury of only having to put on one hat at a time. You know, it's nice to just be the director for the day and not have to like not have a problem arise and have to put your producer hat on for 30 minutes and then go back to being a director. You know, that's, that's the kind of thing that happens when you're working on really low budget movies. Yeah. Yeah. You are not the first person to tell me that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Um, I already asked you about this a little, but I'd like to uh, go back to it. Where do you think the future of independent micro-budget filmmaking is going? I'm thinking of innovations like, uh, I think it was from 2015, the movie Tangerine. Have you seen that? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, which was uh, shot entirely on an iPhone. Mm -hmm. uh, and at this point, a several generations old iPhone. And so um, things like uh, the, you know, 
to what degree uh, do you expect to see more feature films shot on phones? What other mm -hmm. innovations uh, and, and trends that you see do you expect to continue? And do you see anything that you think will really shake things up? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I notice as a professor is um, more students using their phones to make movies and being unable to tell that that's what they're doing which is, I used so to be you're able, unable to tell that, that, yeah, that they're using their phones? I used to, yeah, I used to be able to look at student film and have a pretty good idea of what they shot it on. And that's gotten tougher because of how good the sensors and the lenses are on, on cell phones. You can still kind of tell because cell phones always have these insanely wide angle lenses, which flatten <laughs> the image. So whenever I see a movie and everything looks really flat, like everything is in focus from the actor to, you know, the horizon. I'm like, oh, okay, this is probably shot on a phone, but that's okay. Um, well, as long although as if, I, if I may interject, um, yeah. that is actually, uh, at least on, on some of the most recent phones, uh, uh, less a function of the um, lens that they're using and more a function of the software that's processing uh, the image that it is possible to, um, if you don't use the default video app, but download um, something like Filmic Pro, mm -hmm. uh, you can adjust the uh, the focus much more precisely. Um, and it, um, what what it, uh, I, I believe, what the default app is doing is recording two videos at the same time, and or, or more videos, and and compressing them into a single thing so that everything's in focus. Mm -hmm. um, so even that is going to go away as a thing that. Uh, lets you detect when something's shot on a phone. Yeah, what? and I don't know how good our eyes will be for this kind of thing. Maybe a professional cinematographer would be able to tell, but the process that you're talking about um, is a digital process. You know, it's, a, it's essentially like compositing two images, right? Yes. Um, and this is what phone software has had to do forever because most of the lenses on phones are essentially fisheye lenses. They're so wide, they're designed that way because the average person who's shooting a bar mitzvah or a family barbecue does not want to have to worry about keeping the kids in focus as they're playing in the yard and they're filming. You know, they just want, they want everything to be in focus. And so it makes sense that they would have these crazy wide angle lenses on, but it requires the software to sort of, um, Kind of like the kind of like, you know anamorphic images you have to it has to change the image before you can look at it um otherwise everybody looks like a cartoon um what's interesting about tangerine and some of the stuff that like soderbergh has done um is that they're using these pretty sophisticated lenses that they're strapping to to phones, yeah. right? So it's a little, it's a little misleading to look at a movie as beautiful as Tangerine and go, "Wow, it's shot on a phone," and have this idea that the Sean Baker just pulled his iPhone out of his pocket on the day they went to the set. When in reality, like he had a lot, there was a lot of gear attached to that. Yeah, to the, that the way phone. I. The way I think of it is um, they had a certain amount of budget for all of the camera gear, and by using an existing camera, they were able to spend all of that budget on lenses and mounts. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. I'm so curious to try it myself. I haven't made a movie on a phone, but I am eager to do it, and I hope to do it in the next year or so, 
just to have the experience of kind of experimenting with it because I think it'll be I think it'd be really fun. Um, but yeah, what's I mean to get to your question though, I think the more interesting thing is not the technology and and more the idea that people that didn't used to be able to make movies, like for example, high school kids can now make like feature films and you can find them and watch them and some of them are really impressive. Yeah. Um, and I, yes, I remember ahead. I remember making uh, films in my backyard as a kid and needing to uh, like feed the camera was plugged in with a wire to my VCR that that needed to be like fed through a window so that we could shoot in the backyard. <laughs> and that's not an issue anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it. The first movies I made were to edit them. I had to uh chain a couple of vcrs together and you know do the pause pause method which anyone my age will remember this and it makes a glitch on every single cut so <laughs> all, my, the, all of my earliest films um shot on vhs are have a glitch on every single edit and you know now like what the students the, the students i have coming into my class you know that are like you know 19 20 years old They've been edit shooting and editing video since they were and posting it, like distributing it even since they were like little kids, um, which is something I've been teaching for like 20 years now. And that's that's a change that I see pushed a little further every single year. It doesn't mean any of them have any idea how to tell a story with those <laughs> images, but it does, but it does mean that they're coming in with a technical savvy um and just the experience of having done it um that i haven't seen before which is kind of cool because it it creates a shortcut to do more interesting stuff in the classroom yeah that's an interesting point you bring up about the distinction between storytelling skills and technical skills um and it seems relatively straightforward to gain technical skills you just you keep trying to make things and whenever you encounter a technical problem that you don't know how to do you look up a guide for how to do it uh for aspiring you know teenagers or or people who can't afford to go to homes uh, go to film school or things like that uh what sort of strategies would you recommend for learning more about uh how to tell stories effectively through the medium of film mm -hmm. well i mean the best thing you could do is watch as many watch as much work as you can um i mean that tarantino is the famous example that everybody likes to point out right that he didn't go to film school he he worked at a video store and he watched a million videos and he rewound them and paused them and rewound them and watched them again and analyzed shots and storytelling structures and he stole stuff from all of those videos to put in his own movies um so you don't need film school i think what but film school does offer you um, a forum in which to experiment with like-minded peers and um, and uh, opportunity to work with faculty who have experience guiding, you know, developing visions um, for filmmakers. Um, it's a good place to find a voice. Do you have to go to film school to do that? No, not at all. But um, but it can certainly help. Um, I'll tell you the when I I used to work in Hollywood before I became a, an academic, and um, I was an editor, 
And I remember this guy one day coming to my edit bay to drop off a bunch of uh, dailies. Um, this is back when they were shooting on tape. You had to digitize the tape before you could edit it. So he you was bringing- physically transport the tape it, to the editing yeah, bay. Uh -huh. yeah. So he was bringing the footage and he saw the two big monitors that I was cutting on. And he, I, had a, I was working on an Avid at that time. And the Avid had this very colorful rainbow keyboard um it was a color-coded keyboard and he looked at that and he goes whoa he goes i have to learn how to use that so i can start editing and i was like what do you mean professionally and he's yeah and i was like okay <laughs> and he left and i just remember thinking knowing how to use this machine this keyboard no more makes you an editor than if you taught me how to like handle hold an easel and some paints would make me into Bob Ross. Like it's just the the two things have nothing to do with each other. And so that's something I always have to sort of dispel for film students. Like it's usually kind of a first day thing. They come in and they think that the purpose of film school is to learn how to use a red or how to shoot with a C three hundred. And I could teach I mean, I could teach anyone how to do that. I could teach a little kid how to operate a red, but you know, that doesn't make you a filmmaker. It doesn't. It doesn't show you how to tell a story that's going to be interesting to an audience. So, you know, that's that's the that's the thing. That's that's the big kind of misconception about tools um, that I find. I find I find talk of technology um to be very limiting in in its interest to me really yeah um although the uh talking about uh the sort of almost contrast here between technology and storytelling uh is making me think of um how we can use that uh the specifics of a of a given piece of technology uh, to the advantage of a storytelling. I'm thinking of a, a horror comedy that I watched recently, um, Dude Bro Party Massacre Three. Have you heard of this? <laughs> no, it's a great it's, title. It's a great <laughs> title. Uh, there, there is no Dude Bro Party Massacre One or Two. Um, nice. The the sort of meta premise of the film is that you are watching somebody's uh, pirated home video version of this film where it was playing on tv and they recorded it on their vcr and so you are watching a vhs tape although i haven't been able to confirm this but i believe that the entire film was created digitally and that there was never actually video involved at any point of the process but they deliberately mimic like the you know the artifacting and sort of stuff uh that that comes with video um and i've been noticing that uh uh more and more and like that that's a thing that people of approximately my age who have this nostalgia for like blockbuster video um and things like that of like oh let's go you know watch a bunch of vhs tapes uh have that people have been um getting into that like with movies like uh vhs and vh yes which i which i really yeah. like that one that's a great movie um and the thing that i find most interesting and most amusing about this new movement that seems to be arising is that 
I of all the ones that I've seen, I think VHS is the only one that was actually shot using video, and the rest are entirely shot using modern tools and then altered to look as though they were shot using video. Mm -hmm. um, but at least to my eye, it's usually pretty apparent which one somebody is doing. Um, and so I'm curious, uh, what have you seen that really makes use of the specific technology that it's used um, to, like, like uh, Dude Bro Party Massacre 3 is specifically attempting to evoke the feeling of watching a movie late night on your crappy CRT television. Um, like, there, it, it even has... Uh, uh, poorly edited out, you know, in, in significant air quotes, commercials uh, every now and then. Um, and so that's very much making use of the specific technology in order to evoke a specific feeling as you're watching the film. I'm curious if you've seen other interesting uh, people attempting to do that sort of thing, or if you have added any ideas yourself in that regard. Yeah, it's that kind of experimentation is really interesting. And I think what you what you're getting at at the end there, I think I agree with you. It's it's interesting when there's a certain feeling attached to an aesthetic um, and it usually emerges um, from different eras of technology. So we attack, you know, something looks a certain way in the seventies and then something else that looks different in the eighties. Um, and it's, it's almost like a cultural construct, right? Like the 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 idea of even a long time ago, the difference between film and television, you know, shooting on celluloid versus shooting on video, one is an electronic approximation of an image, whereas the other one is a purely photographic process and your eye receives them differently, right? When you look at a when you look at a video image, you're looking at two fields of lines of pixels that are being drawn on the screen 24 to 30 times a second. When you look at a film image, you're being given an actual photograph, a complete photograph all at once, 24 to 30 times a second. They're going to look different to the eye. And because we, we historically have consumed one in one setting, which is a movie theater, and the other one in the other setting, which is our living rooms, we have, we've culturally um, and emotionally assigned different sort of um, value to them. And so one has become to mean truth, right? Video is now means documentary to most people. It means the news, it means something real, it means reality. Whereas film means fiction, it's, it's something more romantic, it's more heightened. Um, but we don't stop to think about why those things feel different to us. And it's why, it's why, and I did this with Blackpool even, it's why we try to take digital information and make it look um, photographic and analog. Blackpool had a, um, a film plate applied to it in post-production. Um, we recorded a very clean digital image and then we put, essentially we put fake grain on it and yeah, I had a bunch of I had a bunch of projectionists that were that thought it was um, 16 millimeter, and uh, and I was like, cool. That means we pulled it off. That like it, and but it was just it's because it's a narrative work, and we wanted it to look like we wanted it to enter 
your being the audience your their headspace as a fictional narrative work we didn't want you thinking about the quality of the image and how it might it's it's that weird thing peter jackson did the hobbit a few years ago oh yeah right? in, in, in six, very high frame rate yeah 60 frames a second and if i don't know if you actually saw any of that footage but it's so bizarre looking because it's like watching the hobbit done as local television news it has this you you can <laughs> see not only can you first of all it's way too much resolution you can see all of the like lines of the makeup where it meets the flesh and you can see the wigs and it looks awful in that sense but it also moves weird very fluidly in a yeah and, but in a way that looks, yeah completely artificial it, and, it made me think of a video game yeah yeah exactly and it so it you just your eye takes it and assigns a different like an emotional response to it because we're just culturally not used to seeing that kind of story done and with that kind of aesthetic um and it's very off-putting and very weird but and yet in theory looks better than most film right because you're getting more frames a second it, it should be it's more visual information so it should look right. better to you and yet somehow it looks worse than 24 frames a second where you're getting less information yeah i mean the the comparison that always comes to mind in that regard is like you know what is the most visual information you could possibly experience as an individual go outside and stare at the sun <laughs> <laughs> but that's not a really great experience <laughs> well i've read i mean i don't know a ton about it because I just don't, as I said, I just don't find this stuff to be all that fascinating. But I've heard that 8K provides more visual information than the eye can really mm. effectively process. So there's a point at which, you know, you're spending all this money on a television and they're they're making these amazing advancements in, in resolution on your TV. There's a point where you are not going to be able to appreciate it because it's going to move beyond what you can really yeah. take as a as a person yeah you know? um backing up a moment about thinking about uh film specifically uh i i'm a big fan of old um black and white and and silent films and a lot of those uh the visual quality of them has degraded over time because the only version that we have access to was uh digitized from a piece of literal film stock that literally degraded over time mm -hmm. and uh but some of them have been kept in pristine condition and so whenever i like show my friends uh an old film that has been kept in pristine condition uh there is always somebody who's like really surprised and who thinks it must have been you know digitally upscaled or something like that because they're just shocked at the potential resolution of film uh of film stock um which I it always makes me wonder like I, I watch these old movies what how how different was the experience for the people who first watched them how different was the experience for the people who made them um and a modern thing that I've been frustrated with uh that that strikes me as sort of similar is um quite a lot of modern films especially horror films are extremely dark 
uh, and a hypothesis I ran into recently is that the people who are doing the editing and the color grading and all of that sort of stuff of these films are using extremely high-end monitors that can display tiny deep differences in contrast and really deep rich blacks and stuff like that. And so from their perspective, it is not nebulous and, and overly dark. From their perspective, it's crystal clear. But then when I watch it on my cheap home, home setup, mm -hmm. I can't tell what's going on. Um, and so I'm curious, uh, when, when you're, uh, you, you edited this movie, right? In mm -hmm. addition to writing and directing it, mm -hmm. uh, when, when you're editing it, do you edit it on like a really high end monitor? Do you watch it on multiple different monitors in order to see what it would be like? How does yeah. that go? Yeah, both. Um, I edit on a really nice monitor, but I, um, but I take it and I look at it on my TV. Um, with the factory settings, um, because I know that ultimately most people, um, that the biggest audience the movie is going to find is going to be on streaming. That's just the reality of it. And so um, I know most people are going to see it in their living rooms, and I hope that it look, can look as good as it possibly can. But yeah, you're right. It's it, That's a funny thing. I hadn't really thought about the fact that these people are looking at these things on $12,000 monitors and then do you remember the whole hullabaloo uh, around the, I think it was the next to last episode of Game of Thrones. It was a big battle. The whole episode was a battle sequence and basically every major news outlet in the world the day after it premiered said that people were- Nobody could see anything. Yeah. Horrifically upset because nobody could tell what the hell was going on. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I even remember seeing it in like, cranking the contrast a little bit on my uh on my monitor on my tv trying to figure out like what the hell i was looking at and yeah i wonder if it's at least in part because of what you just said which is they were making it in you know probably a facility that could accommodate the nuance of all those shadows and yeah yeah um yeah i mean and and even just like being in a completely like this is not a blackout curtain behind me and so there's some light coming through it and so unless i'm watching movies in the dead of night i mean which to be fair i often am watching movies in the dead of night uh yeah uh, everything that takes you further away from ideal conditions is something that i would really hope that the people doing the editing would keep in mind but it appears that often they don't the one that's yeah. really getting my goat at the moment is the uh, Hellraiser sequel slash reboot where um, everything about it looks really great to me except that it's incredibly dark and like I, I did a comparison recently just you know to my friends showing here's the reveal of the hell priest slash pinhead character in the new one and here's the same scene from the original and look how easy it is to tell what's going on in the original yeah. compared to the remake I remember the first time I saw Blackpool in a really state-of-the-art theater was at a film festival, and um, there was all this stuff in the background of the shots that I was like, "Hey, I haven't seen that since <laughs> I, I cut this like eight months ago." I had like completely forgotten that that stuff was even there, and I was, "Oh, look at that! Like this is what it looks like with, you know." six-figure projection yeah yeah man. yeah uh, an experience i had recently um i live in a, a relatively small town that still has a drive-in movie theater and so they will occasionally show um 
older films. Uh, and and we there was recently a triple feature of um, a night, uh, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And Friday and Nightmare both looked exactly how I remembered them. But Texas Chainsaw Massacre looked really dramatically different than I remembered it looking. And I found, uh, again, going to what you were saying about The Hobbit, where the image is, in a technical sense, better, but it does a worse job of the storytelling that one of the things I've always loved about Texas Chainsaw is that it's this very grimy, gritty, low-budget film that practically looks like a snuff film that was filmed by the, the characters, even though, you know, clearly it's not framed that way. Mm -hmm. um, but then the uh, uh, version that I saw in at, at the drive-in was crystal clear, and I could see every little detail. Um, and this let me notice things where I was like, oh, that piece of furniture is much newer than that piece of furniture yeah. uh, and stuff like that. And, and it really took me out of the film. Yeah. Um, and I asked the projectionist about this after the fact. Uh, and I was like, what, what's going on? Why is this so different from what I'm used to? Um, and the response was, which I've got written down here is, uh, we're guessing you've just seen terrible prints before, um, but we ran on digital and maybe you've only ever seen it on 35 millimeters, uh, which I mean, it was shot on 16 millimeters, yep. so I kind of so already the fact that they're calling it 35 millimeter makes me a little incredulous about their uh, explanation of it. But um, I'm really curious uh, if you have a hypothesis as to what's going on in that regard. Like, was it originally intended to look this way? And it's just the fact that I've, I mean, honestly, probably mostly seen it on video, which is going to degrade the quality even further, or or. What's going yeah, on? Yeah, I mean, it's probably a couple things. It's probably it's how you first consumed it the first 45 times you saw it. And so <laughs> that's that's the way it should look in your head, right? And um and also it's possible that they in digitally restoring it, if you want to use that word, um have cleaned it beyond where they should have for a movie like that. Where I see that and where I find it really distracting is um with old special visual effects mm. um one of my favorite movies from the 80s is the last starfighter and they showed it on an imax screen here in portland a couple of years ago i was so excited to go see it um on a big screen and i went and it all the effects had you could see the mat lines around every spaceship so Anytime a spaceship flew through the frame, there was this traveling block of gray around the edges of it. Oh man! And, you, and it was—it looked like um, it looked like South Park animation, like cut out. Oh, like they were just moving. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. Paper around the screen, and it looks so awful. And I realized, like, oh, so it's possible you can clean a movie up too much. Like this, this kind of thing, I would never have seen it in a lower resolution, which is how I've always watched this movie in a lower resolution. And I was sort of like, yeah. I don't know that I ever even want to see this on Blu-ray. Like maybe, maybe DVD is like the limit for The Last Starfighter because there's a point where it's actually going to start to look worse the yeah. more cl the cleaner it looks. 
Yeah, the thing that made me really suspect that there was some digital cleanup going on like that uh, is that not only did this print of Texas Chainsaw look uh, much cleaner than I remembered it looking, it looked much cleaner than the two movies we had just watched before, um, Friday and Nightmare. And so that made me think that like, unless they, for some reason, only had access to a lower quality print of those two films, which seems unlikely, um, it's it, this seems like it must have been a deliberate decision that someone made. Yeah. Uh, the studios seem to have an unnatural fear of film grain. When you like the idea of digitally restoring a movie, it seems like to a lot of studios means trying to scrub out all the grain so that it, like the idea that grain is not cannot be part of a picture with clarity which I find is really weird for a medium of film. Like, that's pre a special the pre Predator, look at the Predator, the original Predator Blu-ray. And, and uh, it's one of the ugliest things I've ever seen because they digitally scrubbed the image to try to get all the film grain out of it. And you know, it's a 30 plus year old movie. It's going to have big film grain in it. And it should, and and there's nothing wrong with that because that just means it looks like a movie. Um, and in fact, for a movie like that, you almost want it because you know it's sort of like you were saying, you want to feel like you're at the drive-in, right? You want to feel like you're watching, <laughs> yeah, a movie. And yeah. and so yeah, they scrub it, and and it and it creates these like horrific digital artifacts, and you feel like you're just watching something that's streaming, and but you're watching it on a very slow connection. <laughs> so, this is sort of the experience of looking at it, and I, I, I look at it, and I can't. I think, how could anybody who works in the film industry have thought this looks good or better yeah, than a, it did? That's a fascinating dichotomy there, because, uh, like you say, there's this sort of fear of the natural artifacts that arise, while at the same time, there's also uh, a strong tendency for people to artificially put those in um, yeah. to make things look like they were filmed on, on film, like they were yeah. shot on film. Um, yeah, it's kind of funny when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, that some people are working to get rid of that, and at the other end of the budgetary spectrum, we're putting it in. Yeah, it's very bizarre. There's a um, theater here in Portland called the Hollywood Theater who do really innovative programming. They're kind of like the Alamo Draft House for Portland. Oh. Um, they do really interesting stuff. And one of the one of the series that they run um, shows, it's uh, called B-Movie Bingo, where you get a bingo card and they show a B-Movie. But what's great about it is they show it on VHS. And so they actually wheel this cart with the VHS deck out on the stage in front of the screen and it's a giant screen it's a, a really it's like an old historic um film palace um and so they they hook this vcr up to their projection and they'll they actually project the movie from the vhs tape and often it it's just awful looking you know it's rolling the image is rolling there's the like the glitch at the top that you know kind of the that wavy awful quality that old VHS tapes get and sometimes the sound just drops out or it just goes into a bunch of static for a couple minutes and we oh, just man. and they just roll with it they just and and it's not and they're showing movies that are like available on 4k but they <laughs> purposely show them from the VHS tape and I always think that that's just a great um great way to see those movies and experience them with a group that sounds fantastic yeah it's fun
Do you still have a VCR? I do not. No, I yeah. um I, I moved uh too many times uh as, as before. Like now now I, I I own this house uh and can afford to like accumulate things like that. But um the time between when I last owned a VCR and now I I moved way too many times in between to cart that did sort you, of thing around. Did with you me. grow up on VHS? How old are you? Yes, I'm so thirty four. You're a VHS kid. You yeah. So that's the tail end. You kind of remember the tail end of a VHS, right? As a 34 year old. Uh yeah. VHS I mean, my... was kind of gone by the late 90s, right? Was it? I think so. No, I I distinctly remember getting a copy of The Matrix on VHS, and The Matrix was released in theaters in 1999. Yeah. Um, and so like early 2000s, maybe. Yeah, I think so. DVD, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I I started uh, watching movies really in the um, the early '90s, and then throughout the '90s was when I, uh, until recently, was the time I most spent uh, watching mm -hmm. films. <laughs> yeah, I, I asked my students about it, and they have no like most of them have never held a VHS tape or seen one in person. Oh, wow. Yeah, I re wild. I remember being a kid and like seeing people hold up film strips in, you know, in movies mm -hmm. and and being like, okay, I want to do that. And like disassembling a, a VHS tape and going, why isn't it working? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because I didn't know the difference between yeah, film and video holding at the, the tape time. Up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't see through this. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's cool. We have a, um, at the university where I work, there's a entirely student run movie theater where they do all the programming and booking and everything themselves and they always get um 35 millimeter prints of everything they or almost everything they show and it's fun to go because they're not getting the best quality prints and in some ways like that's far more rewarding like i went to see footloose there and i and which is another one of my favorite movies from the 80s and and I thought, I hope this print is just looks like garbage. I hope this looks like a truck backed over the print because if I want to see this movie look amazing, I can watch it any night of the week on my, you know, my big screen TV with my Blu-ray player. Like I want to feel like I'm seeing this at like a drive-in. And sure enough, it was like just the worst print. It was like there was dust everywhere, and there were like the little little scratches and the hairs in the game yeah. and i was like oh this is so great i love it I, during that uh viewing of uh texas chainsaw I, I found myself feeling appreciative of all the schmutz on my car windshield yeah that it... <laughs> yeah well it's as close as you're gonna get to feeling like you're seeing it when it came out right like yeah. having an experience of i mean short of like borrowing your dad's old car from the seventies or whatever, and going, in, <laughs> going to the, going in that, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to get those experiences now. Yeah. I, um, I really enjoy, uh, like I'd never been to a drive-in before I moved here. Um, and now it's my favorite way of watching movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I really enjoy the social aspect of it. Like before the movies began, I was talking to the people in the car next to me mm -hmm. and they were like, yeah, know i saw texas chainsaw massacre at the drive-in when it came out and i'm like oh man history I, yeah it's I amazing love it so much yeah did you sneak anybody in in your trunk 
That's the <laughs> no. true. That's how you have the true drive-in experience is you oh, bring yeah. four or five of your friends and they crouch in the trunk so that you don't have to pay for them. Yeah. Oh <laughs> man. I uh I'm I'm willing to pay to support this place because it's it's eleven dollars <laughs> for a ticket and it's a double or triple feature, and they have like it's it's six dollars for an actually good hamburger at the restaurant that the that is nice. also the building hosting the, the projection booths. So um the best best deal in in uh cinema in my opinion <laughs> that's cool yeah we have a we have a we have one here too about 20 minutes south of portland um and they just this weekend uh the 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 uh booth got hit by a u-haul like a hit oh and run somebody brought a u-haul and crashed into the booth and knocked it out and then took off so they're oh, having they're running a crowdfunding campaign to to do the repairs because I imagine that they weren't exactly turning a giant profit. Yeah. Anyway, so hopefully they'll be able to get it get it fixed and back up and running because it's a it's a valuable resource to us um film lovers. Yeah. Yeah. Good I, I wish them luck with that. Um so do you have uh would you like to plug your your upcoming project? Do you have a social media or anything like that that people should follow you on? Um, yeah, I mean, just my website, which is my name, www.dustinmorrow.com. And that has kind of an archive of all of my um, scholarly writing, as well as my film work. And and, uh, and and has many, but not all of your short films on it. It does. It has. Yeah, it has quite a few of them. Um, there are a few that are still kind of circulating in in festivals. And so they'll go up there eventually. But for the moment they're out yeah um screening around um yeah yeah that's where that's where you can find me i invite anybody that listens to this who wants <laughs> to talk to feel free to reach out i'm always happy to um chat with fellow cineasts <laughs> i haven't actually heard that that word before i've heard like cinephile and mm -hmm. and things like that but not cineast yeah, it's a C I N E A S T E. Oh. It's probably French. Um, it's a little pretentious, but you know, so what? <laughs> we're we're filmmakers. We're film lovers. We can afford to be a little pretentious from time to time. Fantastic. Well, <laughs> thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this uh, conversation. Yeah, as have I, Thomas. Thank you so much for reaching out. It was uh, a lot of fun chatting with you. <laughs>